Hey everyone, it's Allie, and today I'm going to start with a very personal story. For the first several years of my life, I didn't grow and was in and out of the hospital with hypoglycemic seizures because of a rare medical condition that wasn't diagnosed. In those early years, I was so off the charts not normal, my mom threw out the baby milestones book so she and I wouldn't get some sort of complex. At the age of three, I was finally diagnosed with a pituitary issue, got the replacement hormones I needed, and started slowly resembling a normal toddler. Although I was behind in many regards, no one around me really treated me like I was. It took me until second grade to learn how to read, but once I could, I performed about as well or better than anyone else, and by middle school and high school, I was getting A's and in honor societies. And then... At 16, when I had finished growing, I was taken off one of my hormones, and for the next two years, I started a downward slide, barely scraping out C's and D's at the last moment and struggling socially. My teachers either didn't pay much attention to me or tried to hold me accountable to turning in my work, which just led me to feeling huge amounts of shame and developing coping mechanisms like lying about turning in assignments or hiding my report card from my parents. Fortunately, my mom at some point realized I was not just being a a jerky teenager, got on the internet, found out that humans continue to make small amounts of growth hormone even after we are done growing, and that it's critical to normal brain function, and got my endocrinologist to prescribe it. My senior year of high school, everyone started noticing a transformation. I made friends, I got A's again. And then I went to college, and success became like a slot machine. I wrote an honors thesis. I graduated with a 3.96 GPA, which meant I had essentially gotten all but one or two A's. I was student body vice president of my 26,000-student university and got a key to the city of San Marcos, Texas for my contributions as VP. I was interned for my state representative. I was selected as the outstanding female graduate of 2008. I don't say any of this to brag. I say it because if I had not had someone look at me and be responsive to my deeper needs before my performance, those things would have never happened. And I honestly don't know where I would be today. When I graduated college, I went to work briefly as a pharmaceutical sales rep. I vividly remember doing the training for the anxiety and depression medications I would be representing and getting emotional. Many of the symptoms I had had while deficient in growth hormone were the same symptoms people with major anxiety and depression have, and they had crippled my functioning, both socially and academically. While most people don't have pituitary issues standing in their way, we know rates of anxiety and depression are increasing, especially in young people. And after our episode last week on mental health and trauma, we have to recognize the ways schools contribute to this chronic stress and start to address it for both students' and teachers' sake. Whether it's anxiety, depression, or some other obstacle, the best way for humans to become their best is not through coercion and pressure, but is through feeling fully seen and supported, which requires we don't just see their potential, but first see and accept them exactly where they are right now. I often wonder if the people who argue adamantly for holding children accountable were ever a child that people tried to hold accountable. Whenever someone uses those phrases, I immediately feel the trauma of having a benchmark seem to be more important than my needs as a human and individual. But to say that is heretical in education because the accepted belief is that we must hold children accountable no matter what, or it means we don't believe in them. 
Going to say right now, that is a false choice set up by a structure of school that treats everyone the same. And maybe the only possibilities in a model like that are to make people do things at the same time as everyone else, or there's no way to keep track of them and they inevitably fall through the cracks. Which, yes, would be bad. But as a teenager who felt like no one cared or understood me, especially the adults who tried to hold me accountable without understanding why I was behaving the way I was, I say for the sake of equity, we must move beyond this harmful binary thinking and explore a third way. One of the alternatives is, yes, play-based learning structures. And in this episode, we're going to dissect how it leads to environments of equity, inclusion, and a different kind of accountability so that we can be responsive to students and in doing so, give them what they need to unlock their potential and their own internal sense of accountability to themselves, something far greater than our temporary external pressure that has questionable impacts on their long-term sense of self and competence can have. Whew, that was fiery. Let's go. Hi, I'm Allie. And I'm Annie. And And you're you're listening listening to That's So Edvolutionary. An education podcast where we explore what teachers, psychologists, anthropologists, and the latest thought leaders are saying about what we can and must do to transform learning environments so that every child has the opportunity to thrive in our world today. Annie and I each have over a decade of experience in classrooms. And we are still teaching and testing out ways to make schools work better for children. And for the adults who support them. Join Join us us as we evaluate the evidence, dig through the debates, bury bad ideas, gush over good ones, and build a roadmap for all teachers, whether at home, school, or in the community, to show what is possible as we evolve our system of education together. together. Oh, hey, pal. Hi, Annie. (laughs) How are you? You know, I'm Good. It's good to be recording with you always. <laughs> yeah, always. Well, I do want to say thanks for sharing that story. Uh, it's one I've heard before, but every time I hear it, it blows me away a little bit because it's quite a complex and incredible adventure you've been on. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I hope that you share one of your stories one of these days. I don't have any stories. That I've had no hardships. <laughs> that is not true. <laughs> oh, all right. Well, let's get into the goods. Yeah. Because yeah? okay. I think this is really complex. I mean, every episode we've done is really complex and I never want to, to you know, cross the line of making one story represent all people or, or you know, like. Yeah, of course. Yes. But I I like your analogies and your stories because it helps me anchor into complex things because (laughs) some of us aren't as science and research minded as you are. (laughs) Well, I will. Okay. So let's get, let's get into it. Yep. As I was thinking about the not believing in kids versus holding kids accountable, I think all of this goes back to, uh, once again, as always, the white supremacy culture we've talked about in almost every episode, in particular around binary thinking. Either this or that, not could there be a third, fourth, fifth way, or is there more complexity to this that requires we think about it in a different way? Yeah, totally. And, you know, I do think the hold kids accountable mentality came out of the very other real side of the pendulum where for many years and probably still in plenty of places, you talked Mm -hmm. about this, you know, on a different episodes week, you have kids who were disregarded by teachers because of their race or class or ability or, you know, maybe even not in that vein, but like 
disregarded in the sense of like over pitying. Sure. Um, you know, um, so, uh, and so it, it feels better to have this very strong, all kids are going to be held accountable because we believe in all kids stance. If your only choices are, you know, letting them fall through the cracks or forcing them to immediately meet our expectations mm-hmm. and two choices is often how our culture pushes it to think, but it's not actually how life is nope. like you said, and we can choose a third way. And I think, think we have to because humans don't like to be controlled or written off which is what these two choices ultimately are getting us well and the funny thing is it's the third way where we'll actually get the closest to true equity right because clearly writing off our kids is wrong (laughs) and also per your story pressuring kids for a specific external outcome while not responding to them as full complex humans is not going to get us the outcome we hope for yeah So let's start with the definition, Annie. Um, The National Equity Project, who I actually got to work with them when I lived in Oakland for a while. I know. You lived in Oakland? I did. Like before or after San Francisco? Uh, Well, I mean, it was kind of at the same time period. Okay, keep going. (laughs) Yeah, and they were amazing. Um, And they define educational equity as when each child receives what they need to develop to their full academic and social potential. Makes sense. And it also makes me think of our interview we had last season with Vernon Jones, a local Denver educational advocate, he used the phrase, hold people able versus hold people accountable. God, I love that. Yeah. And (laughs) that totally changes the focus, right? When you hold people accountable, external outcomes are what become most important. Rather, if you hold people able, how you support them is what becomes important. And as we know, we need to change the environment, not the flower, if we truly want people to reach their potential and work at their best. So accountability might actually stand in the way of equity at many times. Okay, listeners, Annie nailed it. So episode done. Yay, our shortest one yet. Bye. Just Just kidding. kidding. (laughs) But I think that is exactly the third way, holding people able. That is equity, giving people what they need to be successful. And with the way school is structured around standardization, equity right now is literally a mountain for even the most dedicated teacher to overcome right now. I mean, we've talked about this at nauseum probably, but if I'm managing the whole class, I have very little opportunity to get to know you and your needs. And even if I do know your needs, I literally don't have the time or space needed to actually plan for those needs because I'm already planning multiple lessons each day and taking work home with me on nights and weekends. I must simply manage and process you through the same thing at the same time as everyone else because that is how the curriculum instructions are are structured all day long. (laughs) And if I don't, then I'm just Basically giving up on you and letting you sleep in the window. <laughs> Allie rant, Allie rant. And way to tie it back into last week. I really appreciate that. But, you know, as you're saying that, it's like when with all of the things that, that, that teachers have to overcome, the mountain, one of those huge pieces is the behavior, right? And so all of these things that are leading up to the behavior, we also know that Kids are telling us what their behavior, that they're not getting what they're, they need. Yeah. And teachers are leaving in droves because they're tired of being held accountable to something they know doesn't work. And also, they're out of resources of how to fix it. Yeah. And many who stay have been pushed into a place where they blame this failure on themselves, sometimes even their students, and neither of which is accurate or ultimately helpful. Yeah. I mean, so let's, let's get some hope rolling, Okay, Annie. I love hope. And um, talk about how play-based learning structures create a different reality or a third way that we've been talking about. And I think it's important to restate that does not mean you don't have 
whole group time at any point. There are certain things like read-alouds or writer's workshop lessons that go hand-in-hand hand with the class coming together and having this common experience, right? But it isn't a flexible structure, and so it's not optimal for everything because it, it does not create that space for the responsive relationships in the day. And I can think of things like literacy skills and math that are two areas that I think are particularly more effective when you can work with kids in small groups that are responsive and that move along with their needs and are able to get at their area of focus and they can practice at their level on activities that will get them ahead. And maybe that's why I'm so focused on K2 is because you've told a story before about, you know, what if you have a fifth grader who's on a first grade level? I think that if you did these responsive structures in the earliest grades, we wouldn't be passing kids along with gaps. Well, a hundred percent. It also comes down to really knowing what the, you know, highest leverage priority skills are to be yeah. supporting. I don't have to give that fifth grader absolutely everything in the world. Yes. I need to give them the exact things that they need to accelerate and get to where they need to go. Totally. But when I think to like, if you have a kindergartner who is basically at the beginning of their journey and you're like, I must teach this thing every day. And that's a kid with chronic absences. There's yeah. that, those a gaps are going to transfer with them versus if you Anyways. systems and structures set up to actually give them what they need when they're there. Yes. Yeah. No, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, the comment I hear a lot from people is, how will we ensure that they're doing grade level work? I get in this fight actually a lot, and I have lots to say about it, but <laughs> I actually, again, think that this came from a really real place of kids in less resources schools being given low-level um, BS worksheets, yeah. you know, to do because they were behind, and then never getting the opportunity to do more advanced work. Yep. And not even, an, and it doesn't even have to be as simple as a worksheet, yeah. right? It's the, it's that idea of meeting them where they are. Well, meeting yeah. them where they are, it's like, well, yeah, they don't know their letters yet. That doesn't then mean that I don't get to the complex thinking, which yes. unfortunately has been the case. Well, so. and I think the, one of the biggest barriers to that is the tools teachers are given are just not adequate hundred percent to do that. Yeah. And so like, that's not what we're talking about yeah. here, right? There's ample research that when people work in their zone of proximal development or ZPD, if you will, it increase, <laughs> increases the rate of learning. And so instead of a daily objective that every human in the classroom does, which by the way, was arbitrarily chosen by someone, you can have a mastery based trajectory of all the standards that allow you to plug in students where they are and then provide additional support to the outliers. And then all the activities along the trajectory are intentionally chosen and high quality curated, if you will, so that no matter where you are, it is not low level bullshit work. Right. And so this mastery trajectory, aka scope and sequence of the content is a standard part that guides this and ensures every kid gets the same opportunities. But then the equity part is that different kids need different pacing or more repetition or mm -hmm. more time with the teacher or taught in a different way, ta taught in a slightly, maybe they need one-on-one -on -one, or maybe, you know, they missed five days and <laughs> just need the lesson at all. And that's ultimately going to get them closer to their potential than being like, no, you missed this. It's, it would be low expectations for me to assume that you couldn't do, yeah, you yeah, know, yeah, today's yeah. thing. Um, anyone so. else notice that you can't force a person to learn the same thing on the same day as someone else? Yeah, no. Mm -mm. No. No one else. Mm -mm. No. I, I feel like we've been trying and failing at that for forever now. Yeah. Um, but you can provide the support so that they ultimately get to the same destination. But it does require looking at teaching as a trajectory that is 
flexible based on the student versus a set daily nugget of content because nuggets don't have a way for you to easily revisit them for students who needed more support or were absent. No, and flexible is the key there. If you remember from the last episode, yeah. like that is one of the things that we need to be adapting towards yeah. so that we're supporting mental health and all of the Yeah, there's a there's an organization called the Modern Classroom Project that I think is really great for older students that uses a, a blended learning where the teacher um, creates lessons that are on the computer, which is why we don't advocate in K2 because we want to pres yeah. preserve that time. But for older students, they can access the content at their pace. The teacher pulls them into small groups. The teacher's free to kind of move around and support kids. And it does create that flexibility that then allows more kids to get their needs met. Well, and if we're thinking about flexibility, and, and we were talking about that because of all of the absences that can create these gaps or loss of learning, if you will. And and since post-COVID, there are more and more and more. I mean, we had to implement an uh, app, uh, what's it called, attendance fairy this year, you know, like, which seemed like a very, like, yeah. what is it, stick in, like, whatever, but also because it was desperate. It's like, yeah. it doesn't matter what great things we're doing here if the kids aren't here to see it. So yeah. with more and more absences being a reality, the set daily nugget structure where teachers can't keep track of what students have missed is causing massive inequities for those students and making it hard to include students with IEPs well and, and all of the other things that we're trying to do. But it's also holding kids labeled as GT back as well. Yeah, like all these labels aren't actually yeah, no, the labels really are allowing us to serve kids. <laughs> right. And... Well, exactly. And so then very few kids are actually getting what they need the way we're doing things. And it's easy in this system to, you know, label as we were talking about who's a good student, who's not a good student. But if the standard is this flexible mastery-based system where everyone gets what they need, then you sh can show up exactly as you are and help others who are showing up exactly as they are because all of you, you know, could do different shit really well. Yeah, well, and hey, 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 that is equity and inclusion. Yeah. 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 So we've talked a lot about equity from an academic perspective, Annie, but I want to end on a behavior perspective because I think that is forefront in lots of people's minds. Yep. It's like the fire that keeps you from getting to the academic side 100%. of things. Um, and uh, actually, I, I uh, in my outline, I've included a quote um, from the founder of Modern Classrooms Project. So that must have been why I mentioned it, because <laughs> I have him you in my notes coming. right here. Yeah. And um, he has an Edweek article on this that I will um, put in the show notes. But he said, if you ask any teacher who is in the classroom this school year, they will tell you students are experiencing more emotional distress than ever before. Traditional models of instruction are fundamentally inflexible, which means they aren't designed to accommodate high levels of emotional dysregulation. This usually leaves teachers in an unfair spot where they have to prioritize compliance and control over de-escalation strategies. The only viable solution is to shift to student-centered learning environments where students have greater control there's that control again, mm -hmm. over their learning and less control over their peers' learning. Well, and play-based learning is totally one of those student-centered environments. And you're right. In past episodes, we've talked about how when a class can independently continue learning and isn't held 
hostage when the teacher must rush to the aid of one of the many, many struggling students, the teacher is actually able to respond to challenges in a much more helpful way, right? They can hold the boundary on the behavior more respectfully. They can be present to co-regulate the big emotions with students. And they can offer follow-up coaching once the emotion has passed so that that student can begin to rebuild their own toolbox, which also, by the way, is responsive, you know, in trauma-informed practices. Oh, my God. And do really whatever is needed in that moment, which, again, is equity. Yes. Mm -hmm. And the opposite, when the teacher is stuck at the front of the room and feels helpless, I mean, (laughs) I'm just thinking, I'm putting myself in that moment. It's like, do I go to the aid of that student or do I teach the 24 others who are ready? And when I hesitate, do five others peel off and start Mm -hmm. having problems of their own? Like, it's totally (laughs) triggering. (laughs) It's totally triggering because there's no right answer in that moment. And when we're triggered, we can't offer the kind of support a child in crisis needs. And so speaking just for myself, we often end up reacting poorly from a place of I need to control and get this situation managed right away. And so... There's maybe yelling or shaming or sending to the corner, and that does not help the child or the teacher's relationship. It doesn't make the class feel safe or included, and it only usually solves the problem, like, briefly, if at all. Well, I think I've said this too many times in this past. Like, the older I get, the more I'm zero to 60, right? Like, my burnout capacity mine is already so high, there's not the same level. It's like, if I don't get it right from the beginning, then I am fucked because I don't have the patience for it But at the same time, at times of the day where you are in a structure where you are not managing the whole class, I have seen you with Jedi magic just fill a kid's toolbox with like strategies that they could they could use at another time and really see and hear them. And so I really and truly do believe that like the intentional structuring of the environment throughout the day is critical to us accessing oh, a this thousand, a thousand percent. And I think of it through the lens of coaching now because yeah. because of being in a co-teaching classroom the last few years, like I've had a variety of people that have to come and share the space and it is two totally different experiences, yeah. right? And so that's a really hard for me who is a controlling person by nature, but also it's more of the seeing the systematic ways or the lack of systematic ways of the environment being designed to support that new teacher yeah. and building in like, I'm not teaching her why I do a good job at those things. I do what we're talking about. Yeah. But I'm not teaching you how to do that part. And so therefore, well, that just really didn't make a lot of sense, listener. But it did in my mind. So coaching notes for the future. Proceed. I think it's good. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I want to end with a great quote from a book called Children Who Are Not Yet Peaceful. Isn't that a lovely title? It's kind of a sad title. I know. I know. <laughs> or hopeful because I know. they will be one day. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. yeah. Not yet. <laughs> yes. Um, that shows how we react to children with behaviors impacts all children in the room. And I am putting in this quote because I'm just thinking of like the idea of inclusion being so important. Mm-hmm. And so she writes, deep down, each child knows he is only as worthy as any other child. Casting some children in negative roles puts the very being of each and every child at risk. If even one child can be cast aside as unworthy, no child is truly safe. He feels keenly insecure at the ground of his being. Oh, that hurts my heart. I didn't like it. I know. (laughs) 
I know. I know. It makes me think of what Doris Dempsey used to say, too, making this more hopeful. She would be like, change the way you look at things and the things you look at change. Yes. And, and anyway, so Allie, that was kind of a hot damn, but in a bad way. We <laughs> talked about that last episode. Yes. So I think it's time for a piece of the road now. Yes, Annie. And I have great news. Prove it. We are on track to release an incredible free resource hub that will give you both the why and the actionable ways to start implementing it. That is good news. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, listeners, you can stay up to date on anything we're doing by, I'm going to give you the list again. Mm-hmm. Number one, following us on Instagram at Edvolutionary. Yep. Number two, subscribing to the podcast. Oh, yeah. Number three, signing up for our weekly email newsletter at edvolutionary.com slash join. Just do it. <laughs> <laughs> And just so you know, we're trying to practice what we preach and have some downtime before the big back-to-school season. So you may hear from us more sporadically until mid-July. Hallelujah. Yeah, we all need a break. <laughs> but we love you, and thanks for listening, and we're excited about what's coming next. Yeah. Woohoo! Well, this is Allie. And this is Annie. And you've been listening to That's So Evolutionary. Evolutionary.